0: I put together the uh, framework for this week's talk before the Saturday night, Sunday morning shooting in Orlando, and I do think that the theme actually is resonant to that event. There's an important story in the Buddhist canon uh, called the Water Snake Sutta, where the Buddha says, You know, if you want to understand my teaching, imagine a traveler following a path that eventually leads to a vast body of water, and there's no boat or bridge for crossing to the far shore where the path continues. So this traveler gathers up grass and twigs and branches and leaves and constructs a raft to cross the river to get to the other shore where the path continues once the traveler has reached the other shore and the raft has served its purpose, should this person drag this raft about wherever they go? And all of the people around the Buddha say, of course not. The Buddha asks a lot of rhetorical questions. And so at this point, the Buddha says, "Um, friends, all of my ideas are like a raft. Simply for the purpose of in any situation trying to cross over to liberation, but none of my teachings are for holding on to. Holding on to is grasping or clinging clinging. And this this teaching at first sounds very kinda of obvious. Uh, the idea that one shouldn't drag around one's views and opinions and cast them onto every situation in life as we try to make sense of our experience, but in fact, almost all of us, to different varying degrees, tend to have ready-made, prefabricated beliefs or stories that maybe we don't think all the time, but when we are faced with the unknown, the uh, tragic these ideas pop up and we run to them as a kind of way to not feel the overwhelm, not feel a tragedy, not feel sadness, not feel a uh, confusion. In the Buddhist teaching, uh, one of the most pernicious forms of suffering is ditya which is always trying to fit experience and events into our ready-made views and opinions. Now, this goes right to the very heart of the human condition. We have a very uh, split, brains, all human beings, and one side, Mm -hmm. the left hemisphere, is dedicated partially to Uh, trying to take everything that's unfamiliar and turn it into uh, familiar, predictable, uh, known entities. And the left hemisphere is also the part of the brain that is responsible for language and language-based ideas. And so while we think that that voiceover that accompanies all of our experience, that inner speech that we make, the autobiography the narrative on the speeches we make that pop up I know in my mind after the shootings in Orlando the first thing that comes up is a very predictable hate speech in my mind directed towards the NRA and towards various republican politicians meanwhile the media and those groups try to redirect the anger toward, the anger narratives towards people who are of Islamic belief systems or otherwise, but I just feel it for people who systematically keep assault weapons um, in people's hands. Um, but that story, those stories that come up that we rely on to make sense of our world, our experience, they're not there actually to... Uh, do anything but try to make, to, f- to file away the painful events of life so that we can keep moving on. That's essentially what our ancestors used language for. When uh, negative events would happen, language provided the possibility of essentially... Filing away experience in a way so that we could go about continuing our, the agenda of building huts, securing <coughs> survival advantages, uh, and continuing on with the plans of uh, achievement and seeking goals and, and whatnot. Uh, the important neurobiologists uh, hemispheric bi- bilateral hemispheric, uh, brain, such as Ian McGilchrist and Ledoux and G- Gazaniga and Jack Pansep note that we are mostly conscious in the left. The left really essentially overlays these ideas onto experience so that we feel we can predict the way that our lives will turn out, that we can make sense, and even more importantly, that we don't feel the emotional upheaval and the confusion that would get in the way of our survival activities. Uh, We are meaning makers, but we make meaning or we try to make sense of it all not really to capture the subtleties or the real pains or the real uh, in-depth experience, but really to simply come up with a nice need conceptual bow to add to uh, the disappointing, the setbacks, the frustrations, and even the horrific in life, so that we don't have to feel it in a much more deep way. One of the reasons we don't like to feel life, we like to think it and turn it into a story, is that our earliest, most painful experiences in life the traumas of abandonment and disconnection of childhood are all felt physically. So we all have experiences of loneliness, abandonment, overwhelm, that were physically experienced before we developed language around age four or five that could... We use to primarily connect with others. But for the first four or five years, we are living primarily as emotional beings. And so, the most traumatic experiences, or some of the most traumatic experiences of our lives, are the early physiological overwhelm we experience when caretakers are not emotionally connected or soothing. So, from that point on, we, relo- we, t- we run to language and ideas as a way to rescue ourselves from being present with the pain, the heartache, the clutching at the throat. They I know I on Sunday morning I felt this kick in the stomach which was then quickly replaced by the story of anger and then I went back to the feeling and then back my mind dragged me to the anger and then back to the feeling and Even after years of practice, that desire to file it all away as a story is so strong to turn it into something that is something that we can recite. Uh, We all experience this again and again. When we lose somebody, uh, somebody does, we immediately feel the need to console the grieving with, well, at least they lived a long life or they got to go to Paris or whatever. Essentially, we're trying to ride off the grief. We're trying to control and contain the sadness of others. When somebody goes through a breakup and they're devastated, we might feel the need to say, Oh, you'll find somebody new. There's always... You're so wonderful. (laughs) We want to contain the sadness and the disappointment because... We know how contagious those emotions can be, and also we don't want to feel those feelings ourselves. And so, and we know that if somebody else is distraught, we might start to have to open to that as well. So, part of the rush to stories is just a way to numb ourselves. It's very little difference than switching on the television as an escape, it's simply a self numbing strategy. But there's even more of a problem about immediately trying to figure out and make sense of the devastating. For example, when I woke up on Sunday and I saw the news and my uh, on one of my tabs and uh, browser was Facebook and I switched to that and I just saw my wall was immediately f- filled with people maybe only an hour after the tragedy, already trying to make speeches about what it meant. Uh, I feel, th- this is what it means to me, we should all do this, this is... I, so, And I understand that. I I'm sympath- I'm completely understand the need to not feel overwhelmed, confusion, doubt, and to immediately make a speech that summarizes it so that we can, in essence, make it all go away as a felt experience. But also what we do is, we, when we try to figure out life as an idea, as a speech act that we can give, as a set of uh, words, we immediately open to what's called cognitive distortions, which are almost entirely left hemispheric The principle cognitive distortions are, one, for example, confirmation bias. We look at data in a way that confirms our already developed ideas. So some of us might go into this event with the story of people who are inherently crappy, and this will just become another justification of it. Or they might have certain beliefs about people who uh, follow Islam, or they might have beliefs about you know, guns or whatever, and we might uh, just use these experiences as an excuse to validate our already held stories. And in, in so doing, we don't see any of the nuance, any of the complexity, and we don't see this event as something that has claimed so many lives so tragically and feel any of that loss. And we also don't see the complexity to the, story, the events themselves. Globalizing is labelizing self or others after single events. And of course, in these such events as uh, Orlando, it's very possible to immediately write off uh, certain individuals as inherently, as certain kinds of people as inherently evil, to not see, again, the complexities. Personalization is... Uh, believing the actions of others are about us in some way. This is less about news in the world, but very often in our lives when we encounter people who are in a bad mood or are angry or aggressive, we immediately assume that it's aimed at us when in fact that might be just the nature of their uh, mood and has nothing to do with us. I remember a very alleviating story, uh, event in my life. I worked with somebody who, uh, was very dismissive and not in any way, uh, compassionate. And one day I passed by their office while they were talking to somebody else in the exact same dismissive, judgmental way that they addressed me, and I felt really alleviated and relieved. I was, oh, that's great, they're a complete ass to everyone, it's not me. <laughs> The, but I, that need to impose oh and in, the, in Buddhist canon there's a story of this when there's a, this old adage about somebody who's lying down in a rowboat and then another rowboat comes up and bangs against them and they jump up and then they start screaming and then they realize that the other rowboat is empty. There's nobody in it. It's just a boat that has drifted and knocked up. And really the analogy those other people are very often empty rowboats. They're not doing it to us, they just do what they do. They drift into our life, they slam up against us, and they're not really aiming at me, they just are you know, schmutz in general. Or and that, but that's an example of another cognitive distortion, what I just did, which is uh, black and white thinking, which is people are either heroes or villains, winners or losers, good or bad, and You know, I mean, we all have that in the way we view the political world. You know, Bernie is good, (laughs) Trump is bad. That's pretty obvious, but I mean... (laughs) Or Jill Stein, if you like Jill Stein, good, you know. But I mean, in general... uh, But when we impose that upon people in our lives, uh, obviously we're not talking anymore about just... Political views or platforms—we're actually talking about complex human beings with a wide array of moods and needs and histories. And when we invariably get to know people well, it's very hard to cast them as either. That's that categorization. But you know what it all boils down to is the more we rely on stories to make sense of the world, the um, the more we wind up uh, simplifying. We create victimization stories, we make everything about ourselves, and we relive in the same story, and we act in the same way, and we don't have to really investigate, and we definitely don't have to fear. So I'd like to um, just uh, make a proposition that, uh, this is where the, yeah, here we go. um, that meaning after difficult, painful events is far different than the way we normally believe it to be. That meaning, in fact, is not something that arises or is conveyed in thought alone. That it's not something that can be a statement. That the rush to try to figure it out and solve it by thinking is, in fact, a mislaid practice that almost invariably leads us towards stilted and incorrect uh, interpretations. I'd like to propose that there are three qualities of meaning that um, I've come to see through my practice as being a much more accurate and, I think, uh, spiritually enhanced way of trying to make sense of painful experiences. The first is that meaning across, uh, uh, occurs across multiple levels. It's not just in thought. Meaning is something that is felt, that is in the body, is in our behavior, is in the way we breathe, is in the way we carry ourselves. Um, it's biophysiological as much as it is thought that the need to always try to translate an experience into an idea or speech inherently does violence to the complexities of uh, life's events. Because so much of our lived uh, human quality is not just a bunch of words floating through part of the mind, but it's also physiological, feelings of heaviness, jumpy attention, tears, sadness, states of not knowing, and that these are just as meaningful. In fact, in many ways, often more meaningful than the inner speeches we feel the need to um, add on. Um, Jack Pensett, one of the world's most respected neuroscientists, says that The cognitive sciences intentionally put emotions out of consideration. Now cognitive science must relearn that the ancient emotional systems were correct and that they had a power that was quite independent from cognitive processes. What he's talking about is Buddhism and Hinduism that had an important emphasis upon the somatic felt experience of life actually integrated emotion into making sense of life in a way that was far more enriching. The Buddha said that in order to uh, in any way proceed along the spiritual path, mindfully, we had to be aware always of four domains. The first is the breath and the body. The second is our feelings. The third is the emotional quality of the mind, whether the mind is awake or sleepy, angry or heavy or joyous and open and spacious. And then finally, after we become aware of all that, the Buddha said then pay attention to thoughts. But always start with the body and then feelings and then emotions. Feelings are the internal states of being comfortable or uncomfortable. I believe that this is the right order because uh, what we found in neurobiology is that emotions and physiological sensations, as William James proposed over 100 years ago, happen before thought, and they are actually far more complex and nuanced than thought, which always tries to simplify experience into uh, predictable narrative. In fact, uh, contemporary neurology shows that the most immature defense mechanisms of denial, projection, fantasy, and rationalization are all left hemispheric, whereas compassion and openness are right hemispheric. The left hemisphere breaks away an event from the felt and just turns it into speech, the right hemisphere feels and brings in a whole history of, um, of emotions that we've known. So to really make sense of our world and of our events when we go through a breakup or a loss is to not think that we can figure it out, but is to sit with whatever arises. Um, And this brings me to the second proposal, is that meaning takes a lot of time. It's never something that happens quickly. Full integration asks that we not rush towards any form of making sense, that we hammer away after a tragedy to turn it into um, something that we can make a pronouncement about. Of course, again, this means that we have to tolerate the pain. I know after my friend Loren died um, only two months ago, um, the rush, again, was to, uh, to try to make sense and then back again to the feeling of loss and sadness and uh, emptiness and then again back to try to turn it into uh, some kind of story And to really make sense of the unfathomable is, in my work, something that takes a very long time. It's a little bit like after we go through a painful breakup, and at first we're devastated, and we know loss and and loneliness and disappointment, and we make speeches about how terrible they were, and then we want to be with them, and blah, blah, blah. And then, years later, very often, the prevailing, you know, experience that comes to mind is, "What was I thinking?" <laughs> you know, they're to- they or totally on a totally different path than me. You know, they wanted something completely different from life. We were never that compatible. But to get to that place where we can fully be with all of the emotions and have uh, come to some meaning that's at all really accurate in some way, requires allowing those earlier stages of anger and denial and frustration. In the narrative of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who talked about the five stages of grieving, she said that, of course, first there's denial, then anger and bargaining, and finally uh, grieving and acceptance. And the the idea when we hear that is that the first few stages are untrue and that the last stages of acceptance and grief are the only ones that are real. But I'd like to propose that all of those stages are necessary, that sometimes if we rush to feel or make sense of too quickly, of course we're going to have denial or bargaining or disbelief. And that all of the phases we go through are necessary And if we try to jump immediately to the grief sometimes too quickly, uh, it'll be overwhelming and over-triggering, and we won't be able to sit with it. So we need the fullness of um, time to allow an an event to play out across all the different fields. And finally, the last proposition is not only that meaning is something that isn't just in thought, but is embodied in feelings and emotions. And not only that, it's something that can never happen quickly, but always takes time, is that the third quality of meaning is that it always requires other people. That we can never come up with an accurate appraisal of new experience on our own. Because the human mind is set up whenever possible to file away or to, on the other hand, to be emotionally dysregulated. And it's only through when we express our experience and our pain and our confusion to another human being that we can, one, be emotionally regulated, but two, also have our simplistic ideas be gently alleviated and be steered towards something that's more constructed between two people. Alan Shore says, in contrast to the prevailing privileged status of verbal conscious cognition, I, I, turning life into stories, emotional communication between a therapist and a patient lies at the core of all healing. <laughs> Clinical research shows that the more One person facilitates the emotional experience and expression of another the more people exhibit positive changes in their life. What this means is that when I talk to you about my sadness, my loss, my dismay, my overwhelm, in words it doesn't convey. But somehow when I explain it or talk to you, the cracks in my voice, the emotions in my face, my body language, the hesitation in my voice, um, you will see somehow the emotion creeping through. And then I will look at your emotional expressions and I will cue into them. We are, as human beings, set to what's known as implicitly co-regulate. We, while we talk and exchange ideas, unconsciously we gravitate to the same emotional tone as other people. And that helps us make sense in a way that we can never make sense of experience alone. I'll finish up with a quote by Gregory Kramer, who talks about the quality of of connecting with others and allowing for time to take its place. He writes, uh, he's a famous uh, Buddhist teacher, um, trust emergence, trust in not knowing what's going to come up next. Trust in not knowing what we're going to say or what someone else may say or do. If we step into not knowing with acceptance and trust in the unfolding of things without a particular agenda, then we're not trying to accomplish a particular task, such as getting a point across or developing a plan. And at that point we enter into life with full awareness, open to whatever arises. And that's where he proposes true meaning is. So to conclude, I propose that meaning is never something that is thought of alone very quickly, but quite the opposite. It's felt, it's communicated to another, and it it goes through a series of stages before any kind of understanding Because of the 24-hour news cycles, because of the preponderance of views and opinions foisted at us by not only the news outlets, but by the streaming media, that it's very difficult to uh, disconnect from that impulse to try to make sense. Um, And, of course, one easy solution is to as much as possible to disconnect from the sources of where all the views and opinions are being foisted upon us, and instead um, to first, if we can, spend some time just holding the experience and allowing it to play out in something... That is one first felt and then connected with literally interactively with other people to talk about, rather than to try to find to have, you know, the uh, the New York Times or CNN or the Manchester Guardian in my case, you know, or the Nation to 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 unpack it for us. Even if we believe that those sources are inherently one our favorite news source or our favorite what's called, you know, thought leaders, you know. Uh, I Even if one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, you know, today made a speech on what Orlando means, I wouldn't listen to it, because I would want to myself first go through the grappling and the talking about it and the not knowing. And that so that's for each of us different, how your question is uh, obviously... Um, how do we not fall into that that agenda of, and I think it's partially knowing where we're most susceptible to having opinions or views or or uh, neat conceptual agendas being placed, knowing where that is, and uh, not not going there for a while until we have the chance to feel into, because it's so easy to have the outrage of friends on Facebook or, you know, uh, op-ed opinions to hijack. The real work of, of each human being processing with other people what an experience means. And for for me, a straight white guy, it would be different for Somebody who is in the LGBTQ community, or somebody who's from a a person of color, we all would have different takeaways and different, we read different, read the experience differently. And if we go to the media, there's this homogenizing quality that overwrites difference uh, in, to me, a really diminishing way. See if we can move the head in an alignment that's uh, good with the shoulders and the hips so that there's, uh, the head doesn't drift in front of the chest. That leads to kind of slouching and eventually to like also uh, some kinds of uh, drowsiness or drifting away. So, closing the eyes and, or looking at the ground in front of you, whichever works. We'll take a few breaths just to start the practice in unison, a symbolic opening of the meditation. So, uh, just take a nice, long, full in-breath through the nose and lift up the shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears. Good. And hold it up there for a few extra beats. And then as we breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders as far as they can and just gently pull the shoulders back so that you open up your chest. That looks great. And then um, second breath is tightening the belly so that you feel like Tight, tight, tight. And then as we breathe out, soften the belly, really nice, round, relaxed, uh, soft belly. And then the third breath is just allowing yourself to squeeze any muscle groups that you'd like. Toes, fists, face, buttocks, legs, anything you want, and tighten, tighten, tighten. Then release. Ah, very good. Just relax in allowing the breath to find its own natural rhythm and uh from here on don't if as little as possible inter act with the breath, just observe it and let it the body breathe. Sometimes that's difficult to do and that's okay, but if you can just uh give your body permission to uh If you want to supervise any part of the breath, supervise the out breath and just make it longer and smoother, which will generally uh, deactivate the mind and make it easy to relax. So for the first part of the meditation, we're just going to work with... uh, what's called an anchor, it's basically what it sounds like, an object that we keep in mind to keep uh, awareness from floating too far away from the present moment, like an anchor is for a boat, an anchor in meditation is an object we keep in mind like the breath, just to keep us from drifting away into thought or memory or planning. So, there's a lot of different Anchors you could choose from. You could use the awareness of whether you're breathing in or out, inhalation or exhalation. And if you choose that, uh, it's best to have the anchor be the actual physical sensations of breathing, not a general knowledge or idea of when you're breathing, but actually. Find an area of the body, like the chest, the belly, or the tip of the nose, where the breath is actually physically apparent. And just sit and observe that area of the body. And when you're breathing in, count one. When you're breathing out, count two. When you're breathing in, count three. When you're breathing out, four. And then we reach five, start counting back down, 4 on the out, 3 on the in, 2 on the out, and then back up again, 1 on the in, 2 on the out. So we're counting up from 1 to 5 and down, again and again, with 1, 3 and 5 always on in the in-breath. And... Once the mind settles and you don't feel as many thoughts trying to pull you away, you can let go of the counting and then just be with the sensations without adding any number. If you don't like working with the breath, that's absolutely fine. You can simply be aware of the sounds. Hearing the air conditioning, the traffic drifting up from the street below, the the sounds of my voice, the sounds of anything else occurring. You just stay with whatever sound is present without adding any commentary. Another anchor is to just be with the contact sensations, feeling yourself sitting, feeling the clothes in your body, feeling the body swaying, the feel of any air moving in the room, the lights flashing behind the eyelids. Other anchors are holding an image in mind, a very simple image like a candle or a shape like a yellow circle or a blue square, etc. And a place you know very well. We're finally just repeating a very simple phrase such as May I be happy, may I be peaceful, or may I feel loved, or I love you, keep going. Any other phrase that just feels, expressing in very simple words, an intention to develop inner peace. the key is to try to let go of any striving so anytime you feel yourself trying to be meditating or trying to be anything just let go of that trying and just instead relax soften into this (coughs) moment let go of any belief of the way you need to There's no incorrect mood or feeling or state of mind for meditation. Just allow, let go of any attempt to steer your mind in any... Just allow being with this moment in and of itself, cultivate a kind of ease. Whatever your anchor is, you don't need to push anything else out of the mind. So if you're working with the breath and then a thought comes up, just allow it to be there. Just don't allow the thought to become so captivating that you lose track of whether you're breathing in or out, or the sounds, or the contact sensations. As long as your anchor is in awareness that's good enough. And when a thought does slip past your anchor and completely swallow up your attention, just note that without any self-criticism or judgment at all, see if you can develop some gratitude for your awareness and just be very patient and gently escort your awareness back to the anchor the body the breath whatever without adding any criticism if you just can do that over and over again that's a valuable practice in and of itself at this point if you'd like uh, to keep working with your anchor you can or you can let go of the intention of keeping the anchor in awareness and bring to mind a for the purpose of doing a practice in emotional mindfulness is a good tool to develop in one's meditation to connect with the emotional mind. Bring to mind an image of a either a disturbing interaction from your personal life or a disturbing event. Clearly, obviously, the events in Orlando might be either too triggering or might be appropriate. And just hold the image of this experience in your mind, and then ask, what needs to be felt? If it's an interaction you've had with someone that was rejecting, cold, unkind, just ask, How does it feel to be not seen, not cared for? If it's an event in the world, like the shooting over the weekend, just ask, what does this feel like, to be in a world where this can happen, where people can be so violent. And just feel whatever has been waiting to be felt in the body. Our emotions generally use the front of the body, the stomach, the chest, throat, the face, it's a whole circuit uh, of nerves that the emotional mind uses to connect and express feelings underlying our thoughts. Very often in life we lose track of our emotional experience We just live in the story If the emotions are very strong, we can create a safe container by relaxing all the muscles that are not involved, the arms, the legs, so we create as comfortable a body to hold the feelings of tightness, emptiness, heaviness, contractions. Let go of that image for now and bring up an image that's associated with kindness and connection with someone that you've experienced, care, or some event in the news that suggests the antithetical experience to. violent violence and rejecting qualities. Something that balances us towards acknowledging the kindness and care that is available as well in the world. Just hold an image, whether it's from your personal life or not, and just connect with those feelings as well. So at this point, as we reach the conclusion of the meditation, just release whatever images in the mind, and take a last survey of the body, just relax, breathe into, soften, when you hear the sound of the bowl. Before you open your eyes, or when you open your eyes, don't look around the room at first. Just look at the ground and just allow the basic sensory experience of sight, which, if we look around, will be overwhelming and will essentially swallow up attention and we'll wind up losing connection with the body and the breath and emotions. So just allow sight in and integrate it into your awareness